Welcome to the Write It Down podcast with the 1513 Network. I'm Brooke Murata, bringing you one-on-one interviews to challenge, to inspire, and to encourage. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Byron Scott. Byron is a three-time NBA champion, the 2008 NBA Coach of the Year, author, speaker, and father. Byron Scott was drafted by the San Diego Clippers as the fourth overall pick in the 1983 NBA draft. That same year, he was traded to the Lakers where he played 10 consecutive years. He also played for the Indiana Pacers, Vancouver Grizzlies, as well as overseas in Greece. He returned to the NBA to coach where he ended his coaching career back at the LA Lakers from 2014 to 2016. Byron shares his journey from being an NBA player and coach to being an author and businessman. He shares that without hard work, you cannot succeed. Sit back, relax, and get your pens ready because this is Write It Down. All right. Well, welcome back to the Write It Down podcast. Today, we welcome three-time NBA champion, 2008 NBA head coach of the year, author and speaker, Byron Scott. Welcome to Write It Down, Byron. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure having you. So growing up in Inglewood, California, in the shadow of the forum, where the Lakers played until the late 90s, did you ever think you'd be a player and a head coach for the L.A. Lakers? (laughs) You know what? I I grew up dreaming about being a player. I never grew up dreaming about being a head coach. You know, but in Inglewood, being able to see the forum, uh, you know, being able to drive by there, and then ultimately being able to attend a game or two when I was in high school, that was my that was my dream was playing the NBA. And for my favorite team was, you know, was uh, the Los Angeles Lakers. I never dreamed I would play with them at the start of my career. I also I mean, I always envisioned playing with them, you know, towards the middle or the end of my career. You know, when I when I uh, my contract was up with my first team or whatever, then I would sign with the Lakers. That's what I kind of envisioned. I never envisioned being there from the start to the finish. So. Uh, it was a dream come true. At what age did this basketball dream occur? Were you five? Were you a little bit older in high school? I was 12, Brooke. I, I, I mean, I, I remember distinctly coming home one day with my first trophy at 12 years old and walking up the stairs to my uh, my home in Inglewood. My mom and dad were coming out the house. They were about to go to a movie. And they gave me the biggest hug because I had this little bitty. It was my first trophy, but it was, it was the biggest trophy in the world to me. And the thing was probably about six inches tall. And my mom asked me, well, my dad asked me right then, you know, after I, after he saw the trophy, he said, so what are you going to do with your with your life? You know, and I, again, I'm 12 and I sixth grade. And I told him, I said, I'm going to be in the NBA. And my mom was just clapping. It was like, my baby's going to be in the NBA. You know, <laughs> she was just so happy and, you know, just cheerful about it. And my dad with this stern look on his face said, well, what if you don't make it? I said, I'm going to be in the Major League Baseball. And that's <laughs> that was just my mindset at 12 years old. Is I just had a mindset of being in the NBA. Were you any good at baseball? Or was that just like your default, like what you fell back on? No, I was very good in baseball. I was a pitcher and a shortstop in high school. Uh, was getting recruited in baseball as well as basketball. Matter of fact, when I got to Arizona State, uh, Coach Brock, who was the head coach for the um, Sun Devil baseball team, asked me to come out and play baseball but the basketball coach said no and 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 it probably was probably was the best thing for me to just stick to the one sport you know my my teammates i think i think my sophomore and junior year would have been uh barry bonds would have been one of my teammates which which would have been great but we ended up being really good friends so our arizona state baseball team was just as good and just as popular as our basketball team 
What was your relationship like with your parents growing up and maybe even when the, the dream might have not looked like it was taking shape? Very close with my parents, um, especially my mom. You know, I, I guess I was kind of a mama's boy. Uh, she was always home when I was able to come home from school. She was always somebody I could talk to. Um, I think the one thing that I got from my mom that I inherited was her patience. Uh, very patient with me and my brothers and sisters and always uh, looked at life in a different perspective. She never saw the, the negative. She always saw the positive in everything. And uh, that's what I loved about her so much. You know, she, she, as soon as I told her I wanted to play in the NBA, she was like, well, you're going to make it. You're, you're going to be in the NBA. I mean, she was just always so positive. My dad was the, uh, the enforcer, so to speak, in the house, the disciplinarian. Um, didn't really have a great relationship until I, until I left for college because he was always at work. My dad worked, you know, uh, two jobs, you know, ever since I can remember when I was going into high school and then got to college. So we didn't have a chance to really bond until I got out of college, until I got to the NBA where I had uh, time to, you know, sit down and get to know him a little bit better because now I didn't have to go to school. I just had, you know, two, three hours of practice. And then the rest of the day, my was rest of my days were free. So I got a chance to start to get to know my dad. And now my dad and my relationship is is unbelievable. Um, my mom passed away four years ago. So that's something that, you know, that obviously hurt me because of the relationship I had with her. But my dad and the relationship that we've built over the years has been very special. Mm. Do you think that um, your dad, he was like surprised that you, you made it in the NBA? Was it one of those things where your, your mom was like, I knew it. And then your dad was like, oh, I'm so glad you made it. <laughs> I don't think he was surprised. I, I think he he knew in his heart that I had the ability and I had the work ethic. Uh, he just wanted me to really, really concentrate on my education and for good reason, he, you know, because he he would always tell me if you just in case you don't make it, you know, you I want you to be able to do something else. I don't want you to just put all your eggs in one basket. But being young, I was like, no, I'm putting all my eggs in this basket. Right. I'm going to make it in the NBA. I don't care what's in my way. And he was like, I understand that. But, you know, get your education, go to school to be a student athlete, not to be just an athlete that's a student. And, you know, he, he was so right about that. Uh, in, in so many ways. And I understand now, after, you know, obviously years later after being a parent myself, how important that was. So, you know, he was just trying to put that bug in my ear to make sure that I didn't put all my eggs in one basket and, and count on that thing to be the thing that got me out of Inglewood. Yeah. When you're, when you're younger, you look at your parents and you're like, you're just being skeptical or you're being a yeah, pessimist. Exactly. But when you're older, exactly. you're like, Oh, you're actually kind of wise. Thank, thank yeah, you. you know, and, and, and you, you get back now, you know, you, you look back on that and you say, wow, you know, the one thing we don't understand as kids when we're young is that our parents have been through that and we don't give them the benefit of the doubt of understanding that they they've learned from their past experiences and what they're trying to do with you is, help you not make those same, same uh, pitfalls and mistakes that they made, you know? So it, it, it took me a little while to understand that why he was so hard on me about education when I was, you know, doing so great in athletics and football, you know, I played a little football in high school, learned real quickly to give that up. Guys, you're just too big. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, baseball and basketball, that's it. I can play these two and I'm good at both of them. And, I mean, the reason I really chose basketball is because it was fast moving. In baseball, I got bored. If balls wasn't being hit to me, I got bored. If I wasn't pitching, I got bored. So uh, basketball was the ticket for me. But I, I love the fact that my dad always looked at basketball as, as a vehicle to get out, but 
not not the end of all ends. He looked at education as being able to take you a whole lot farther than a basketball could. Right, right. And so when you went to Arizona State, what did you end up studying? I ended up studying business. You know, and I, I always I always told my, my mom and dad the reason that I started studying business is because I was going to be rich and I had to be able to count my money. And <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's the reason I'm taking all these business count uh, business courses. And, uh, you know, they started getting the kick out of it. And I was kind of serious at the time, but also found out how how hard, hard. Yeah business was you know and, and and most people that really was uh going to school to try to get a business degree you know they were looking at that as their future whereas i was looking at that as just something to do once i got in the nba you know so i studied that for a few years then changed to liberal studies um left school obviously a year early uh and i made a promise to my mom before she passed away that i would get my degree because i you know like i said i left uh, school a year early to go uh, pursue my nba career because i got drafted by the, the clippers and traded to the lakers so i made that promise to her so i started taking online classes and to be honest with you brooke i should be done in two months um with uh, getting my degree and fulfilling that dream that i promised my mom i would do wow so that's current you're currently taking classes to finish I, I am. I'm, is, I'm in two classes as we speak right now and wow. looking to pick up one more, uh, you know, so I can finish in May. What, wow. What what a man of character you are to, to fulfill your promise. What a, that's a very um, that's very ambitious. Did you get distracted well, in Arizona, like in freshman year, sophomore year from the dream, from education? Was there there was there a point where you're like, uh, I don't need this. I, I did. I got distracted going into my uh, junior year at Arizona State uh, from the educational part. You know, all the stuff that my dad was telling me was kind of going in one year and out the other, just as, you know, some of my kids have done, you know, when I'm trying to parent them. Mm -hmm. And it, it ended up costing me because I got ineligible. And I, a lot of people don't know this uh, about me and my and my and my journey. You know, they all think their journey is so smooth, but my journey has been rough. Uh, at times and smooth at other times. But yeah, I got academically ineligible at Arizona State because I didn't take my education very seriously. I just wanted to do just enough to get by and make sure that I stayed eligible. Um, and when I didn't do that one year, I took a couple of summer classes here in LA, which was the worst thing in the world to do because I had so many distractions here. And I ended up messing those classes up and went back to school just thinking, ah, I'll be okay. And they said, no, you're, you're ineligible. Uh, which taught me a, a very valuable lesson because that that semester I went to you know I went to class and my I went home first of all to tell the holster I went back to LA and I told my mom I was dropping out of school I was just going to put my name in the NBA draft and my mom for the first time looked at me and said no you're not staying you know she said where are you going to stay I said well, I'm going to stay here she said you can't stay here you know I, I don't I don't raise quitters all I want you to do is go back apologize to all your teachers and try. And I said, okay. And I went back and I did that. And for that next semester, I just really focused on my education. And and I did really well that semester. I did really well the next semester. I decided to just not play ball that year. And then I played the next year. And the next year, I ended up being the fourth player in the draft. Wow. What? How did you feel when you were traded that year to the LA Lakers? I was ecstatic. You know, I, I mean, it, it was a dream come true. Uh, I was I was happy. Uh, I was happy as hell, to be honest with you, just to get drafted by the Clippers, you know, because that was close to home. I didn't necessarily want to be on the East Coast because I never had been on the East Coast. And I want to be that far away from home. 
Uh, the Clippers were close enough where my mom and dad and my you know siblings could come to San Diego and watch me play. Um, so when we were having our problems with the negotiation on me getting signed with the Clippers, and then I heard that the Lakers were thinking about making this trade, I was like, "Oh no, this can't be. This can't be real. You know, this is a fantasy." You know, and all of a sudden Jerry West called me and he said, "We made a trade for you today, and uh, you know, I want to put you on the phone with Jack Kern, our trainer, to get your shoe size and what jersey you want to wear." And I was like, "Wow, somebody needs to pinch me." But this whole Surreal. time. Yeah. yeah, this whole time I was telling my mom that, you know, the Lakers called and they said they're going to try to make a trade today. And I'm a nervous wreck. My mom was like, they're going to call you back. Don't worry. And, and sure enough, you know, they did a little later than they told me, but they called me back and the trade was made. And I was a Los Angeles Lakers. Wow. And there's your mom's patience coming in again. Like, don't worry. Patience, They'll call back. Patience, yeah, her patience and her positivity of, of thinking that, you know, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, again, I, I've learned I learned a lot from from her during during my years of, of growing up on how to be patient, uh, and I get that from her. So, moving into your NBA career, what's uh, your fondest memory with Pat Riley? <laughs> oh, I got a lot of fond memories of Pat <laughs> Riley. You know, I I think my, one of my fondest one has nothing to do with on the court basketball is uh, the way we would party as a team after we won championships or. Or, or just to have a party that he would have at his house just for the whole team, uh, which is something else, something else that I learned during my coaching stint on how to bring the team together. And he was all about family. And the fondest memory really is watching Rouse, um, you know, when we, win the champ- when we won the championship at the Forum on the podium dancing. And we would always just say, go Rouse, go Rouse. And his, his dance, his little two-step was something that I'll never forget. What's what's some advice that he gave you throughout your career? Things that stuck out to you? Oh man, he gave me so much. He he, he was the first coach that told me I would be a coach when I told him he was crazy. Uh, his work ethic is something that's really stuck out in in my mind for all the years that I played and coached. Uh, because there were there were times that Pat Riley would be on the you know we would be on the back of the plane when we had just got our own plane at that time. And we're flying from New York back to L.A. and the plane would be dark. Everybody would be sleeping. I would get up to use the bathroom and his light would be on and he's got a pencil and a pad. And he's he's just going over everything. And I just thought that was that was Pat Riley. You know, he, he was never satisfied. He was always working. He was driven. Uh, he wanted to be the best. He wanted us to be the best. He always figured out ways to motivate us, to challenge us. Uh, and that's what made him so great is that he 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 really understood that, you know, okay, yeah, you won tonight, but that don't mean nothing. You know, let's, let's do it again tomorrow. It was all about the next day. It was never about the past. So uh, I, I love the way he coached us. I love the way he challenged me. Uh, he made me a better player, a better person and a better coach. Mm. What is it like being on the road for that long? Like most of the year traveling? Yeah, it's, t- yeah, it's tough. You know, you know, most of us have families, you know, we have wives and we have kids. So it was tough. You know, you miss uh, birthdays. You sometimes you miss the first walk of your son or daughter. Uh, it was tough, but you know, we also knew at the end of the day, you know, what we were sacrificing um, at the end of the day was going to for the for the long haul. I should say was going to be probably the most important thing that we ever did in our in our line of work, which was basketball. You know, so we understood that you know we were going to give up some things that we would necessarily didn't want to, but. Uh, to secure our future for our kids and our and our families and things of that nature, 
uh, it was important and it was something that was needed to be done. Can you describe for me what it looked like, the road to the championship? Like what, what does that look like for a player, but then again as a coach? Well, for, for me as a player, uh, the road to the championship meant that it was just total dedication on nine months of your life of giving it everything you got uh, to the team, um, to your to your teammates, and to the organization. And that meant basically putting everything else on hold, no matter what it was. Um, you had to be that committed if you wanted to win a championship. And, uh, you know, Rouse taught us that. And he, he you know, would obviously, uh, especially during the playoffs, you know, I, I know myself and I know a lot of other players did the same thing. I didn't do anything business-wise with my business manager or agent. I told him everything is on hold until this is over. Uh, didn't answer the phones. I mean, it, it was that type of focus that you needed um, to get yourself prepared to win, basically at that time, 24 games. Um, and that's what we were willing to do. Do you think that, like, nowadays with, like, NBA players, that there's a huge difference between when you played and now when, when they're playing, like maybe just the, the, the level of celebrity or just being distracted by different things in the media? Do you think there's, a, there's been a shift in the NBA? Oh, absolutely. And like you just said, I think, you know, obviously social media is a big distraction uh, and you have almost every NBA player that has some type of social media uh, outlets, it be it, be it uh, Instagram, Twitter or uh, Facebook, you know, or some some of those guys, all three uh, and, and probably another one or two that I don't even know of. Uh, so that's a big distraction. Uh, the celebrity is celebrities that they are today are much bigger than we were back in the day. And I think that has a lot to do with social media. You know, they are a lot more accessible than we were, uh, you know, back in the day as well. So the game has changed, uh, you know, obviously. Um, when I say the game, I mean every every aspect of it. You know, the way the game is played is differently. It's total opposite than when I played where it was, you know, you thought about the inside-out game, you know, starting your game, you know, with your post-up players first, trying to make a – or establish yourself from the inside and then it's outside, where the NBA today is outside-in. It's all about three-pointers uh, and layups, uh, none of the mid-range games and things of that nature. Uh, and then from a social media standpoint, we didn't have, you know, I, I, when I first got in the league, it wasn't no such thing as a cell phone and, uh, you know, being able to take uh, pictures off your cell phone, recordings, uh, being able to go to social media and talk to your fans and things of that nature. So it has changed uh, pretty much in every aspect of it. And, and I'm not saying it's for the, the worse or the better. I, I think it's just a revolution of basketball. Right. It's just different. Yeah. Did did you like at any point with, you know, obviously there's when you're in the NBA, there's an amount of money that comes towards your way. And there's also mm -hmm. like more relaxed time. Did you ever mm -hmm. find that that challenging? I mean, again, you, there wasn't social media where people were posting on Snapchat stories or Instagram stories and it was just out there. Do, do you think there's a danger um, just with, you know, that idle time and all that money? Absolutely. You know, especially with so many young players that are in this league now, it is definitely a, a, a distraction. I saw it, you know, when I was coaching Lakers, when I had the young players, I saw it when I was coaching Cleveland with a bunch of young players. Uh, they have idle time and they, they, they try to fill that time. And, you know, just because practice is only two or three hours, you got another 12, 15 hours of the day that they spend trying to figure out what to do, you know, so. Uh, social media and the video games and things of that nature that that's not going to take up all their time so i think it is at a point where you know it could be dangerous to have that time if you don't know what to do with it 
Uh, and that's where we see a lot of players getting into, um, you know, some negativity, some negative things that are that are outside of basketball, being in social media, being in the nightclubs, being wherever it may be. Mm. But this idle time that they have, they, they have more time to get in trouble. Uh, instead of using that idle time for some of these guys are young, go back to school like I did. Don't wait till you're 50 something. <laughs> you know, <go laughs> hey, it's still school. good, though. It, it's still good. But, you know, they don't have to wait that long. They go back right. to school. Take a couple of classes, you know, Fill in the summertime. Fill yeah. your time that way. Uh, start looking at things that you want to do after basketball, life after basketball, being in business or being an entrepreneur or whatever the case may be. Fill your times with something positive instead of some of the stuff that's going on now. Yeah, I, th- I think that's good advice for, I mean, even those that aren't in the NBA or a playing professional sports, that's when you have that idle time, filling it with something else. Um, yes, reading a book, doing, going outside, just because sometimes when, when you have too much time and too much money or whatever it is, um, you, again, you just get yourself in trouble and then you end up, yeah. um, focusing so much on yourself and what you look like and do all these different things that can ultimately be self-destructive. Absolutely. Be a mentor. Yeah. You know, I, I, that, that's something that I think is very important. We don't have enough, enough of these young guys that, uh, that want to be a mentor to a young person, you know, so, you know, find a mentorship program where you can mentor a young person or a young, you know, especially a man, a young male or a female, uh, you know, so again, you can give them some advice and some of the things that they, and, and it's so much more gratifying when you do something like that as a person, yes. you know, that you help somebody else. Yeah. Serving, serving someone else. Who would you say is, is your mentor in life? Maybe, maybe currently more currently. Oh, my dad, you know, he's number one. And, and then number two is Jerry West. You know, Jerry West has been a guy uh, who, who made the trade to bring me here to Los Angeles and took a lot of grief for it. And and then at the end of the day, pretty much, as he told me, pretty much everybody that gave him grief had to apologize uh, to him for making that trade, you know, because I wanted to make him proud. But every decision that I've made that had to do with basketball from a coaching standpoint, uh, or even a player standpoint, I would always call Jerry West, as I call him Logo, and I would get his advice. Uh, so he, he's he's the guy, you know, that's, that's been a mentor to me since I've been in this this league. But uh, my dad is the one I look up to because, like I said earlier, you know, this this man was working two jobs when I was in junior high to high school to move us from the heart of L.A. to Inglewood, which I thought at that time was like moving from – you know, from uh, Los Angeles to Beverly Hills, uh, getting getting out of Inglewood where I grew up, uh, we're seriously gang infested and drug infested to being able to move to Inglewood was a, a big upgrade. Yeah. So as a dad, because you have two influential men in your life, um, yes. as a dad, like what, what are some of the things that you try to implement with your kids? Uh, I think the first thing is just work ethic. You know, anything that you want in life, you're going to have to work hard for it. Uh, it's as simple as that. Um, humility, you know, no matter how famous or rich you get, you know, you still know better than anybody else. You've just been more blessed. You know, those are the two main things that I've tried to deal, try to uh, install in my three kids. Uh, and, and for the most part, I think I did a pretty good job. Me and my ex-wife, I think we did a pretty good job of doing that. Our kids are very humble and very gracious for what they got. Uh, and all of them are very caring and very good people. And none of them have been in any trouble, you know, so obviously we, we've done a pretty good job we, of that. But yeah, those are the main sure. two things. Yeah, for sure. Did you, um, 
So you, you moving forward, you released a book recently in 2017. Yes. What did that mm-hmm. process look like? And, and it's with your workout partner. How does yeah, that happen? Yeah. <laughs> well, Charlie, Charlie Norris is my workout partner and been work, my workout partner for almost 17 years now. And we met at the gym and uh, started working out together and formed this unbelievable relationship. And one day we were laying on the mat after working out all sweaty. And he says, <laughs> you know, I think I think we should write a book. And the, the premises of the book was that everybody kept coming up to us and just asking us, why are you guys laughing and having so much fun? And then they would just kind of leave. And he he said it to me. He said, see, they never asked the second and third question. And I was like, wow, OK, Charlie, now I kind of get where you're going. Uh, so the, the basis of basis of the book was basically in, in twofold. You know, number one, if you look at the cover of the book, you, you see me. You know, this tall, athletic guy uh, playing the NBA. And you see short Charlie, who's, who's a short Jewish guy. <laughs> and and the first thing you think when you look at the book is pretty much what everybody at the gym thought at first. You know, what the hell do they have in common? Why <laughs> All do they these work years. <laughs> All the years. What do, why do they work out together? And the second part of that book is that he's a he's a very, very successful businessman. Uh, I'm a a successful NBA uh, player slash coach. And we talked a lot about the similarities between running a basketball team and running an organization and how much similarities that they had in common. And we just decided to go with it and try to write a book about it. And we had a great great, uh, ghostwriter in John Wark who lives in uh, Florida, uh, who's, who's written a couple of bestsellers. And we brought him to L.A. and did 40 hours of taping. And he put it together and it turned out great. And uh, ever since then, over the past three years, we've probably done 30 uh, speaking engagements on our book uh, to companies, um, uh, to law firms, on on leadership uh, and, and what it takes to be successful. So it was something, you know, again, the, the one thing about Charlie and I is we've, we've never been uh, scared to you know go outside the box. And that's the one thing that I, I tell a lot of people, you can't be afraid to, to, to fail. You know, you got to try new things. Uh, you got to go outside the box. You got to be adventurous. And that's the thing that Charlie and I really had in common, along with so many other things. We were always looking for challenges. And uh, that's what made this friendship work. And and writing a book is a challenge. I mean, it's, it's a long process in itself. It is. It is. It took us about a year, year and a half to get it all the way we wanted, you know, the way we wanted it to, uh, to sound and look and uh, the way we wanted to present it to the world. And, you know, it, after we got it all said and done, we went back to our publisher and they loved it. Uh, then it was time to start doing our little tour. So something that we're very proud of, uh, something now that we, you know, Charlie talked to me about a couple of weeks ago about doing a second book. And, uh, you know, we, we're, we're in the process of kind of putting some things together just to see if it'll work because we think it, it, it's an interesting process and it's called second life it would be called second life and again you know his his life after being a businessman my life after being in basketball and where we've kind of gone from there and just kind of interviewing other people who have had success in doing it you know being in sports or entertainment and people who haven't so um it's something that we're kind of thinking about right now but the first book was a lot of fun because we spent a lot of time together 
We're going to take a quick break from our show to discuss Patreon. Patreon is a secure site that allows creators to make albums, videos, and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. So if you enjoy Write It Down, please head over to our website, xvxiii.com or spell out 1513.com in your browser. Click on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and show your support. Write It Down is made possible by the 1513 Network, so please send over your love, your support for the other shows as well. If not, just stick with Write It Down because I'm the coolest, the realest, the illest. Anyways, back to the show. So speaking of Second Life, was it um, difficult for you when you were done coaching to transition into normal everyday life was that was that tough for you because basketball was your dream and then you you played and then you coached and then it's like it's done was that hard for you it it, is hard because of the fact that you're a competitor you know i I love to compete i I love to uh, compete when i was a player i love to compete as a coach even though you're not you know really the competing is your team out there you got to prepare them to get ready for the game but you're still kind of matching wits with that guy across from you that other coach And, and i enjoyed that you know so uh, not having that over the last three and a half, four years, as we talked about earlier, I, I've substituted other things to take that place mm. and that fix that I've had. So I've, I've indulged myself in more business activities with Charlie and I, and uh, we've uh, gone into business together on some housing projects. We've gone into business together on Fresh Pet, which is a company that he basically started about 10, 12 years ago or whatever it is. Um, so I invested in that and, and we've got an, another a baking company that we invested in. So I, I've kind of, you know, traded that 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 sideline approach to uh, another sideline approach of really getting behind the businesses that we've gotten ourselves interested in. And it's been fun. It's been challenging. Uh, and and it's, it's a lot of fun when you see those type of things that are kind of coming to light. And you are using that business degree. So your parents were right. Another yeah. another point they were right. <laughs> do yeah, you, they were right. They were right in that aspect. Right, You're right about that. <laughs> do Do you and Charlie compete in the gym, or is it all friendly? Oh no, we compete there too. We, we you know, I, and the first time we started working out and lifting weights and everything, I was thinking I'm gonna kill this man. He's, he's at that time he was fifty. <laughs> 56, 57 years old, I said, man, I can't have him trying to lift what I lift. And then I finally, you know, he was like, no, what did you just lift? Let me try that. I said, you sure? And then he was like, yeah. Then that's when I really started to find out how competitive he was as well. That's the other thing we had in common, his competitive nature as well. He just had it from a business aspect uh, compared to where I had it as a, you know, from a uh, athletic aspect. So we, we knew we had a whole lot of things in common. It was, it was fun that we've been able to get together and know each other even more. So now it's, you know, he's, he's like my, my big brother, his family. He's, he's my, he's my brother from another mother right now. So there was, there is a little bit of trash talking in the gym, but you guys write good books together and good workout partners. Absolutely. But we, we still give it to each other. If, you know, I'll come over his house and we'll play cards and backgammon. If I win, I'm walking out of there talking all kind of smack. And, <laughs> it's you healthy. Know, and I, all, all the trash <laughs> talking. We have a lot of fun and, and it's just all in good nature. But yeah, yeah. He, I love him to death. He's just a great person. And like I said, it's just a lot of fun. It's, it's good to be light, lighthearted for sure. Do, so tell me, how does a drama free guy like you get roped into basketball wives? <laughs> Well, my fiance, who's soon to be my wife, wanted to do the show. 
uh, and when she said she wanted to do it, and I told her I really didn't want her to, but she said she wanted to do it. So, I've, of course, I am going to support her yeah. uh, in doing that. Uh, and then once she started filming, you know, they kept asking her if I would come on with her and have a dinner or whatever and all this. And I basically, I end up telling them I'll do four shows, but you're going to have to pay me a certain amount of money. <laughs> to get me on so there all how, the time. Yeah. So that that's, end up, that, that's how it kind of ended up starting. Uh, and then the next year, obviously, I was on a little bit more, but uh, something that I really didn't want to do. But again, I wasn't going to leave her on the island. Never, ever was, was I going to do that. And, um, you know, we had we had some good times, just her and I on there. But obviously, it, it definitely affected the uh, family dynamic. Yeah. What's so what's the process like of a, of a reality TV show? I mean, are they do they come to your house? Is it like you just schedule time for that? I mean, what's the background of that? Because it's definitely a different production than sports or news yeah. or talk show. Yeah, it's a little bit just like you said, they would carve out time and ask uh, CC if they could do a scene at the house. Uh, and I told her that they could do, I think I said two or three scenes. That's it. You know, I didn't want them in my house all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they would, you know, ask her if they could do a scene at the house. She would ask me and tell me what the scene was about, what it was going to entail. Uh, and obviously I would say yay or nay, you know. So if I said yes, they would come and set up and all that good stuff. And then I would come home and uh, they would kind of go over it with me. This is what we're going to be talking about. And then w- once they kind of tell you what, what the scene is about, basically you just kind of run with it and yeah. you talk about whatever. And that's basically how we kind of handled it. You're a good man, Byron, supporting your fiance on this because I, ha- I have to. That's my, that's my girl. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> if I were to ask Cece or your closest friends about you, what would they say? What's something that you think they'd say about Byron Scott? I think they would say, uh, number one, uh, very loyal. Uh, you know, his friends are his friends till the day he dies, unless you're wronging. You know, my friends have been my friends since I was 12 years old. Uh, my four or five buddies that I call my true friends have been there every every step of the way. Uh, I think they would say that, number one. I think they would say very generous. Uh, but I also think they would say, but do not get on his bad side. <laughs> you get on his bad side, he, you're on his bad side. There's almost no way of really making up for that. Because uh, I do take, I, I take my friend, my friends very seriously and family mer- members very ser- seriously. And you, if you do wrong me, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like a punch in the gut, mm-hmm. you know. And I, and I, the one thing that I do now, even I tell my, I tell my wife to be all the time. I said, listen, I always ask God to soften my heart because I am hard mm-hmm. on people that wrong me. I, I, I find it very hard to forgive, you know, uh, and forget, you know. So, but I think if you ask most of my friends, they would say he's cool. Great dude, do whatever you need him to do. If 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 you if you're in trouble, he'll be the first one there. But do not wrong him. Don't get on his bad side. I mean, I'm not going to lie. When you said that, my heart dropped a little bit. I was like, okay, (laughs) note to self. I'm writing down. (laughs) Write it down. Don't get on Byron's bad side because you're stuck there. Even if he prays to God, you're still on the list. I'm I'm praying. I'm praying to soften my heart, you know. But boy, 
it's it's hard sometimes. (laughs) It's just hard. Oh, it it is hard. I think that's just what's kind of put in some people for for wanting justice and wanting things to be right. And so I'm not condoning grudge holding, but I fall into that category as well. You you understand. You're not condoning it, but you understand. I understand it. I'm empathizing with you and I am still scared a little bit of you, but that's okay. (laughs) Brooke, you have nothing to worry about. It's all good. That's amazing. So, so tell me, tell me about. Um, I have to give a little ode to Marcus Allen. How long have you known yes. Marcus? What's oh that story? God. I think he told you a little bit of it. You know, I was I was in awe to see Marcus Allen and Ronnie Lott at a high school basketball game that I was playing uh, my senior year when they were at SC, and I'm a big football fan period mm-hmm. uh, i'm a big i'm a big Steeler fan yeah i mean team wise that's my team but every team that marcus played on i was a big fan of marcus and i'm a big 49er fan because of ronnie being with the 49ers um so i was a raider fan when marcus was with the raiders you know when he went to kc i was a kc fan but more of a, just because he's there right and when i saw him and ronnie at my game it just shocked me you know it, it surprised the hell out of me that they were at the game uh, and then I didn't see them again until, you know, four years later when I was in the NBA. Um, got to know both of them, just which was a dream of mine. I mean, I was, look, I, I, I met Ronnie Lott and I met Marcus Allen. And those are two of the biggest stars to me that were, you know, that were at SC and then with the 49ers and the Raiders. I was like, man, I, you know, I've I become friends with those guys. So it wasn't nothing better for me. That was, that was, that, that took the cake. And we, we've kept that friendship for all these years. Uh, you know, we've, we've played in golf tournaments together. You know, Marcus is the, the salt of the earth and, and so is Ronnie. And they both know they can call me and say, you know, pro, I need you at a golf tournament next week. You available us. I'll, I'll make myself available. Don't worry. You know, because I got that type of love for those dudes, and they just—they're just unbelievable dudes. And Ronnie Lott made—he made a uh, a ten-year-old who had who had seen Michael Jordan, David, David Robertson, Magic Johnson, Charles Barkley, and that's my son, my oldest son. He's seen all these NBA players come in, and he would get—you know—he would get all these guys' shoes. But when he met Ronnie Lott, he, his mouth dropped. And it, it surprised the hell out of me because of all the other guys that he had met. But I knew the feeling because I was like, you know, I got the chance to meet him as, at a much older age, you know, uh, than my son. When my when my son met Ronnie, you know, San Francisco was winning Super Bowls. And he was just in awe of Ronnie Lott. And I, it just it made me feel good that uh, he picked somebody like Ronnie, who was the type of person that he is. Just a great, great person off the field. But boy, on that field, he's a monster. Yeah, and, tenacious. Um, tenacious. And, and Mark is the same way. Off the field, one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. But you watch him on that football. I, I, I remember this one play distinctively, and I don't know if Marcus even remembers this play. <laughs> but he got into it uh, with one well, – I can't remember. I think it was Kansas City. I can't remember. The guy hit him so – or Denver. Maybe Denver. But the guy hit him so hard, he jumps up so quick, letting the guy know, man, you, you, you can't hurt me. You know, I never seen Marcus Allen take a direct hit and stay on the field. He was that elusive. You know, he was that crafty and he was that tough. He came right back, you know, a few plays later and ran into the same guy and ran him over the next time. So he, he was that same way, just tenacious, that pit bull type mentality on the on the football field. And that's what I loved about those guys. And and I remember Ronnie 
asking me about uh, Showtime. You know, this is before San Francisco won their first Super Bowl. And we talked about winning and what it took. And I said, I tell you what, all I can tell you is this, because you guys got it in San Francisco. You guys are headed that way. But win as many Super Bowls as you can while you can. I said, because we, we won a lot of championships in L.A., but we squandered two of them. I said, so, man, man, Ronnie, I'm telling you, you know, win as many as you can while you guys are together and while you can. Transformative play. And and the thing is with both of those guys, they were both on the show. Nicest guys ever. Like, oh, you can't, you can't beat it. No. They and I look up to them in so many ways, especially after hearing their stories. But like watching some of Ronnie Lott's like highlight film of him oh. hitting. <laughs> like, I'm more scared of him than I am you. Um, <laughs> just because. Oh, I'll watch it. Yeah, I watch some of it now and say, oh, my God. I mean, Ronnie was trying to decapitate guys, you know, and Marcus. Was <laughs> he just, was out to kill. He was trying to kill people. You know, and Marcus on the other end, you know, still to me, you know, both of those guys, obviously, I mean, they're both Hall of Famers, no doubt about that. You know, they done made their mark. But, you know, I, I still think Marcus is one of the most complete running backs I've ever seen in my life. Quick. You know, he, he run up the gut. You know, he'll run outside, catches the ball, blocks. You know, I mean, he, he's one of the best running backs all all around that I've ever seen. But but the real question is, who has a better golf game, you or Marcus? Uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm gonna toot my own horn here. I think I got a little bit of better game than Marcus right now. I think I think Pro is good, as I always call him Pro, and I call Ronnie uh, RL. Pro is good. He can he can play. There's no doubt about it. But I think I got him. I think I can get him. Um, and let's, let's put, if we played five times, I think I would win at least three of them. Okay. Would he agree with that statement? Would he agree? Huh? Would he agree with that pr- statement? Probably not. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so not, I'm, I'm not going to take any sides here <laughs> because. But all I can say is this, his, his, his turn, because we never play, you know, in the same foursome because of tournaments, but his last tournament that he had at, at uh, Newport Beach at the Pelican Hills, uh, moi being me, I went away with the uh, championship. We won the tournament, so that's all I got to say. <laughs> that's enough said. You don't. You don't <laughs> need to combat say. that at all. Um, I'm on your side. You won. That's it. That's all I got to say. That's all you got to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I'm going to have to tell him about this conversation. But we'll tell him. <laughs> we'll tell him that you said he was the best player. We we got to build him up a little bit. Yeah, okay, that that sounds good. So tell me a little bit about um your your foundation, Byron Scott Children's Fund. What's what's that about? Well, Byron Scott Children's Fund is all about children. It's all about helping uh kids with cancer. Uh it even has uh, a part a part of the um uh the foundation is about battered women as well. And basically it's really like I said, it I, I've always been about kids all my life, you know, since I've had kids and being able to go to Chalk Hospital and see some of the kids that are going through some of the, the chemo and some of the things that they had to go through. And, you know, when you walk in there, some of those kids, they, they just light up, you know, to, you know, see an NBA player, you know, way back in the day. And uh, I remember going to Chalk Hospital in Orange County, and then I left there three hours later after trying to go to see every kid on that ward that was in chemo, you know, and they had them all covered up. And I, I can just come in the room, but I remember getting in my car and just, you know, looking out the window with tears coming down my eyes, trying to figure out a way, how, how can we help? Um, 
And that's been that's been my life dream is just really trying to help kids have an opportunity to live, you know, to have an opportunity to grow up and be an adult and do some of the things that I was able to do, um, you know, and, and a lot of these kids are fighting for their lives and they shouldn't be at four years old, five years old. They should be out playing having a good yeah. time, not thinking about anything. So that's just one of the things that has really touched my heart. Um, the other thing over the past like five years is uh, I've joined a community called uh, a foundation, I'm sorry, called uh, Community of Friends, which deals with homelessness here in Los Angeles, especially. And I've been on their uh, on their board for the past four or five years to speak at their uh, their dinner every every year in May uh, to bring in our new our new our new um, uh, our new guests and our new uh, uh, people that are that advocates are for the homeless and and we try to just be, make people a little bit more aware that there is a problem not only in Los Angeles and in California, but in the world of homelessness. And, um, you know, I'm trying to do my part to to bring that awareness and also, also to have these guys and girls who have uh, done so much, and a lot of them are from the military who are now homeless. You know, we're, we're trying to give them a chance to, you know, get their lives back together as well. So those, those are my two biggest foundations that I've, that I've lent my name and my money to over the years to, uh, you know, try to really help. Uh, with the situation. And I, I mean, I commend you for that and not that you're doing it for any sort of glory, but I, I think when you are given um, an advantage and myself as well in life and you see kids with cancer or homeless homelessness in our own country, it's a very, it's a very good perspective to take. And, and I feel that even on like mission trips, you are, mm-hmm. you're, you're outside of your own, your own world sometimes mm-hmm. because you can get caught mm-hmm. up in, and the chasing and the and the, the dreams and all that stuff. But when you realize that there are people under the same sun and moon as you that are struggling to breathe at night because of chemo right. and, and things like that, right. it's just, it's really good perspective and kind of goes back to what you said about people with their idle time. What could they be yeah. doing? Yeah. What could you be doing? I mean, you could, you could, it's so many things that you can do with idle time. It's so many things that you can get involved with with that idle time, especially like we talked about NBA and NFL and major league baseball players that are so young, that are looking for things to do. Those are a lot of the things that you can do. And in the way that I got in contact with community of friends is I told my manager, I said, find an organization, a homeless organization that, uh, that we could talk to and see if we are a good fit. I said, it's that simple. Find an organization. He found five of them. We talked to all of them, and community of friends to me was the best fit, best fit for me. They've been in business thirty years. I've never heard of them. They were looking to be uh, a little bit on the forefront, a little bit out front, and they wanted to be a little bit more visible. I wanted to do things in the kind of in the background, so it was it was just the perfect fit, you know. And so it, it's worked out extremely well. I'm extremely proud of being a, a part of them, and I'm. I'm hoping that they're happy that I am <laughs> and that, that sure we're doing are. good things. And, you know, I look forward to uh, really trying to eradicate this, this homeless situation that we have here. Yeah. That's, that's very noble again and speaks to your character. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. In the, in the wake of the tragedy with Kobe Bryant and his beautiful mm-hmm. daughter, Gianna, um, mm-hmm. You had such a close friendship with him, uh, spent a lot of his career with him. When he was mm-hmm. 18, you mentored him as a teammate. And yeah. years later, his head coach, um, I can only imagine the the tight brotherhood and bonds that you 
you shared, what was um, one of the memories of Kobe that stands out to you? I'm sure there are so many. Um, I mean, the beginning, you know, the memory that stands out is we, we were sitting down in some video that, that I found that I put on my Instagram that uh, his rookie year, we were sitting down after practice and I was doing this thing for NBA entertainment. And I called Kobe to come here and, you know, sit beside me. And I was talking about, uh, talking about him. And, and I was telling, you know, NBA entertainment on this tape. I said, mark my words, this kid is going to be unbelievable. I said, and I'm not saying it because he's sitting here because I see him every day. And then as I'm saying that, he said, yeah, I'm going to slip him a couple hundred dollars for saying that for me, you know. Mm-hmm. But and we, and we just had a, a great rapport, a great relationship at a very early age. And then you fast forward to 18 years later, I'm his head coach. Uh, and to see him go out the way he went out was something that I'll never forget. Uh, you know, 60 points in his final game, uh, a win. Uh, during a time where the team and the organization was really down, um, you know, I, I'll just never forget those those two memories. And we had a bunch of them. I mean, we went to the we went to the beach and, and sit at one of those um, lifeguard stations. We sit up there and just talked. You know, we were just, I mean, but that's just, that was just me and him. We would talk on the bus. We would talk on the bench. Um, and he was just a remarkable, remarkable young man, uh, full of life. Uh, and and was a sponge. I mean, he was always asking questions. He didn't care. He just wanted to know everything he could. He wanted to learn. Uh, and that's the thing that I loved about him. You know, he would text me at 3 in the morning, you know, Coach, what are we doing tomorrow at practice? And I would get the text at 6.30. I'm like, what are you doing up at 3 in the morning texting me? Well, I was just up. I don't sleep. You know, I, I'm thinking about this. I'm writing this. I'm like, Kobe, man, you got to get some sleep. He's like, nah, I'm good, Coach. What time is practice? I said, man, just stay home. <laughs> You know, I said, stay home for this practice. You don't, we don't need you here to, you know, t- today. I, I'll, I'll call you later and tell you what time practice is tomorrow. But that that was just him. You know, he was always, his mind was always wondering. He was always trying to learn. Um, and like I said, an unbelievable person. But the thing that I think people found out now uh, after after this tragedy is that how, how, how great of a parent he was. Yeah. How great of a father, how much he loved his daughters, how much he loved Vanessa, the type of relationship they had. I don't think people really understood that at all about him. Uh, and I'm glad they finally get a chance to know, you know, the type of person he was. And some of the things he did, like you said earlier about me, you know, a lot of things that he did behind closed doors that nobody probably will ever hear about. Right. You know, he was so into kids as well. And, and I think you know, now that this is all said and done, unfortunately, people are starting to find out the real Kobe Bryant because everybody looked at him just as a basketball player uh, and the way he was on the floor, the mama mentality and all this stuff. And they, and they, some of it had a negative tone to it. But if you really got a chance to know him on and off the court, you would realize what a special person he really was. Yeah. I mean, his legacy definitely transcended just even his play, like you said, with him being a a husband and a father. And I think it's a really good uh, lesson to all of us that look up to our idols is they're they're beyond their career. They are people with with um, spouses and children and foundations and beating hearts just like ours. And I think this whole tragedy makes us realize just how human we really are. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you 110. percent And it also, I think, makes us all realize how how precious life mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. You know, you you got to really, you know, as much as we say it, sometimes I think we forget it a lot. Is that you really do have to enjoy life. You really do have to hug and 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 love the ones your loved ones, the ones that are near and dearest to you. 
you have to tell them how much you love them every day. You got to give them a hug when you can, when you see them. Uh, don't take it for granted that you're going to be here tomorrow or next week. You know, you got to live for today. Yeah, life is short. And, and it kind of goes back short. to what we talked about with holding grudges. And to be honest, um, mm-hmm. that like when anything like tragic happens, I think to myself, like, who are the people that I kind of have strife with? And that, maybe they don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me want to send that text or um, to be more humble and just kind of forget the 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 issues that I have with them because life is short. And I mean, we're more recently, I mean, the NBA season's canceled because of the coronavirus, right. you right. know, we're living in really uncertain times right now where life is way too short to, to be petty and, and to just throw shade all the time. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, and like I said, I did tell myself to, um, you know, heavenly father softened my heart after that all happened. Uh, and it has, but there's still a couple of people that I'm like, no, nah, I can't deal with them. So yeah. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to just go on. I, I, I call those people extra grace people where you need yeah. a little extra grace for those people. I don't know. Yes. I mean, I mean, yes. we can, as believers, we can look at it and just go, right, if God can forgive them, then surely I yeah. can eventually, but yeah. I'm going to need him to help me because I can do nothing yep, apart from you, yes. Lord. That's- that's that's where I am right now. I, I understand you can, Father, but you got to help me with this. One. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll leave that at that. Right. Um, <laughs> so this show is called Write It Down, which I've mentioned before. But mm-hmm. um, at the end of our show, I ask each guest to give the audience something to write down, uh, maybe words that you've lived by. So what's something you want us to take away um, from your life or from this episode? These words I've always lived by: uh, hard work doesn't guarantee you anything but without it you will not be successful and you know i could elaborate more you know on it because it was said to me a long long time ago and my dad was like you know you know without you know hard work never guarantees guarantees you anything but without hard work you will not be successful as simple as that. and that means business basketball life i mean whatever the, whatever it may be if you don't work hard at it you have no chance and that's basically what he said. You know, without it, you have no chance. Write it uh, down. Yeah, and I've I've remembered that. I've memorized it for for forty years plus, and it's something that I've I've told my kids as well, and it's something that I live by. So you might as well just do it. You might as well work hard, yeah. even though it might not you guarantee might well. you anything. But it doesn't guarantee you anything. But without it, you have no chance. N- nothing. <laughs> nothing. As simple as that. Write it down. Byron Scott, thank you for joining the show today um, and being so transparent and encouraging us with your life story. Brooke, it was my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Write It Down podcast. This podcast is a part of the 1513 Network. You can catch a variety of shows on their website, 1513.com. If you enjoy listening to Write It Down, please subscribe, share with your friends, and if there's any ink left in your pen, write a review. For more content, follow the fun on Instagram by following at W-I-D-P-O-D. That spells WIDPOD. Super cool. Stands for Write It Down Podcast, but it's abbreviated to WIDPOD. Anyways, thanks for listening, and we will catch you later.